All right, so it's a little bit of a realism uh, smorgasbord today. I like it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capolo. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary, and I'm joined today, as always, by my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. Marcus, today I thought we could talk about something we always talk about, which is great power conflict. I am motivated today because I saw a piece by famed political scientist John Mearsheimer that is published in the, the latest issue of Foreign Affairs, which I got to say, I do not read as a general rule. Mm -mm. And in fact, recommend that no one read as a general rule. But in this case, it was retweeted by some people that I do follow and they were talking about it. And so I latched onto it for that, for that reason. But the, the piece is called The Inevitable Rivalry, America, China, and the Tragedy of Great Power Politics, which, you know, for John Mearsheimer, everything is a tragedy. Very much. Very tragic. So for those not familiar, John Mearsheimer is a well-known realist in the kind of traditional schools of international relations that we've talked about before in this podcast. And this article talks about the U.S.-China relationship and what he calls a, a cold, uh, the new Cold War between the U.S. and China, which others have, have also referred to the U.S.-China relationship that way. One of the interesting points that he makes here is that the U.S. played an important role, perhaps, in China's current position in the international system. After the end of the Cold War between the U.S. and, and Russia um, and the Soviet Union, by helping to integrate China into the international community and build up Chinese capabilities through increased trade with China, instead of taking the attack that Mearsheimer would recommend, which is try to suppress Chinese power. Um, in an effort to maintain U.S. hegemony in the world. That is, the, the U.S. kind of abetted China's rise. And so the U.S. has no one to blame but itself for the current standoff between the U.S. and China. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit. I think it's kind of an interesting perspective. And Mearsheim is basically arguing that China is behaving exactly as realists would expect by building up its power in the, in, in, in the world. And the U.S. now is behaving basically as realists would expect in terms of trying to stand up to China and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with China in this, in this new Cold War. And the anomaly here is U.S. behavior when China was weaker, where it seems to kind of aid in, the, in China's rise in the, after the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So I guess let's, let's talk about this a little. What, what, do you, what do you think of this argument? Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a very good question. I mean, I think the, the first, I, I want to pick up where you ended uh, which I think is to me like one of the most interesting points here, which is this anomalous behavior. It's always struck me, um, not just with, with Mearsheimer, but all of the sort of uh, folks that we would talk about as sort of structural uh, realists, right? Whether you're offensive or defensive, the basic, you know, sort of idea here is that you see the world very much in terms of these, you know, undifferentiated units, that states are all basically the same, and they vary on, on, you know, a couple dimensions, but most importantly, their capabilities. And that's basically all you need to know uh, about the states, the, how, how big they are. Uh, and you can sort of determine what they're, what they're going to do uh, as a result. And so what's interesting to me about this argument that, that Mearsheimer is making, he's sort of admitting uh, that that's not true, right? Because he's, he's admitting that the United States uh, did not act in the way that Indeed, his theory or, or many realist structural realist theories would would have predicted, which is, you know, you see a rising power that you think might uh, challenge your hegemony, you're going to try to put it down or at the very least balance against it. Right. So if his argument is that the United States uh, basically would allow this to happen, it's, it raises a serious problem, I think, for for the tragedy of great power politics, because the question is why? Right. Why would the United States do this? And so to answer that question, though, you have to. I think, start digging into uh, something that structural realism doesn't really talk much about, which is, you know, how much agency do states have in this system that, that might have these sort of general laws, you know, governing things that the structural realists are right. But when the states don't do what you expect them to do, why is that? How do we explain that? What's, what's going on here? So it's a really kind of interesting, it, 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 the, the piece sort of highlights, I don't think this is what Mearsheim was trying to do, but it, it sort of highlights the attention in the theory, which is that on the one hand, I think people like John Mearsheimer want to explain uh, what states do, and then also wants to explain what states should do, right? And exactly. there's a, those are not the same. And so, and so with that, like one is a normative question and one is an analytical question. And so 
he it's 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 an odd sort of an odd piece to write because it's sort of highlighting this distinction and it's not clear that structural realism can do both of those things right you can either have a theory that 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 is about sort of patterns of behavior and you can you know there's an analytical theory about what normally happens in the international system uh but then to flip it around and say in addition to that i'm also going to have you this give you this theory about what states should be doing at any given moment of time what the united states should have done back then which seems to be in conflict with the first claim that I can tell you what states do. So it, it, it's an odd, it's an odd uh, argument. And I think that it's, um, it, it just suffers with this basic problem of how much actual agency and decision-making do we want to give states? And what I mean by that are state governments, state leaders, and so on, uh, in, in sort of creating a, an idea of what international politics is all about. So that's, that's really kind of what struck me. What, I, I read the, or I understood the piece more about the, the sort of limits of structural realism that I did anything actually about U.S. and China per se. Mearsheimer wants to say that this period of engagement with China was a big mistake and that we have now seen the error of our ways, perhaps, and in the future won't, won't behave in this, in this misguided way. He talks a bit in the piece about what was behind the bipartisan support for engagement over the, the kind of post-Cold War period until, until relatively recently. And, um, you know, points to this kind of overwhelming support and, and basically argues that it it was a huge mistake and, and uh, a kind of collective delusion amongst the, the policymakers involved. Mm. But it's hard to imagine a more hardline U.S. response following the, the end of the Cold War, where we just had this kind of triumph of a more internationalist, liberalist approach to international politics. And we didn't have a final standoff World War Three with uh with the Soviet Union we have a country that basically voluntarily disarmed at the end of at the end of an extended standoff with the United States so i i think like the time period involved here there was a reason that this kind of what what uh, Mearsheimer calls liberal triumphalism um was so prevalent in the post cold war period and so you know it makes sense that this policy kind of led directly to a more accommodating or engaging policy with with china I think Mearsheimer is comfortable with the fact that, or would that in his mind at least, realism is not what states always do, but what states should be doing. <laughs> right. Well, so I think Mearsheimer is comfortable with this idea that, you know, leaders make mistakes in not pursuing realist policy, even though that seems somehow uh, contrary to kind of a realist understanding of how states behave. Right. Rationality and everything. Right. But he, but he refers to this as a mistake that the United right. States make, it makes in, um, in engaging with China. Right. I mean, and, and if you read the, the sort of theory chapter of tragedy of, of international great, great power politics, he's not he's not talking about mistakes in that chapter. Right. The, the theory is very much I got these assumptions, you know, anarchy, blah, blah, blah. Mistakes don't factor in there. But then in the real world, when we have these like examples, that's where the mistake then, – then, then he wants to – then he, he's very comfortable talking about leaders and talking about state governments and stuff like that. So I just – there's this disjuncture between the theory, which is very nice and parsimonious and elegant and, 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 and all that. And that you can't – I mean one thing you got to say about John Mearsheimer is that the, the, the sort of core of the theory is very logical and it's very straightforward and it makes sense. Whether it works in, in sort of explaining actual outcomes I think is a whole other, whole other matter. But the theory itself is very nice. But that theory doesn't have – mistakes built into it. It doesn't build in leaders and it doesn't build into all the stuff that he's talking about in this article. And so that's why when I talk to my students about Mearsheimer, you sort of have to make a distinction between John Mearsheimer, the chapter one of Tragedy Great Power Politics Mearsheimer, and then John Mearsheimer, the sort of public intellectual who I think is using a lot of the sort of tenets of the theory, but but broadening it out, you know, to a much, much greater extent. It, it loses its parsimoniousness. Parsimony when we when we start being the sort of John, the John Mearsheimer intellectual uh, bit, but here's okay. So let's let's dig into this argument then a little bit. So I agree with you 100 percent that you know 1989, 1990, Berlin Wall comes down. Uh, you know, Cold War's over. The West won. End of history. Everything's looking great. We're gonna have this liberal liberal order. We're gonna create these institutions. The United Nations is gonna be great. The World Trade Organization is gonna be awesome. No one's ever gonna fight again. Democracy wins. Capitalism wins. End of story. And then somebody like China comes along, and there's decisions that have to be made. This state is not very democratic, uh, who does a lot of things that seem sort of illiberal to us in the, in the West that we don't like, wants to be in something like the World Trade Organization. 
And so policymakers in Washington then have to sit there and think to themselves, do the benefits of allowing China into the World Trade Organization outweigh the costs? And it seems to me that if you're a, if you're a, the U.S. trade representative and you're trying to compete with China uh, on trade, you want them in a rule-bound organization so that you can control them. So one of the arguments that that, that Mearsheimer seems to be making is that letting it letting the, the China into the World Trade Organization is a huge mistake because it, it invites them into the liberal order and it accommodates them. But being a part of the liberal order also means following rules and being a part of a, a of an institution, a broad set of organizations that you have some control over, and that the United States, by being one of the big members of the World Trade Organization, has some control over China. So it seems to me like your choice is basically: do you let China do its rise and and you know develop its stuff on its own, or do you try to accommodate them into the liberal order, where at least have a little bit of control? Because it doesn't seem to me like the counterfactual makes a lot of sense. If we say no to China, you're not allowed in the World Trade Organization. You have to do your own thing. Do we really think that they're just going to just sit there and, and, and not do anything and their economy is going to remain static and they're never going to build a nuclear weapon again? That doesn't seem very likely to me. So I think it's a false choice to, to put it, you know, the United States had an option of letting them into the liberal order or not letting them into the liberal order. And if we didn't let them into the liberal order, they would all they would just be floundering and, and never be a threat to the United States. That doesn't seem very, very likely to me. So I sort of reject the the premise of the argument, at least with the, you know, when it comes to things like the World Trade Organization, because I, I think it's actually the, the, the benefits for the United States were, were actually fairly high letting them in. I'm probably the, the, not a great choice to like voice the John Mearsheimer opinion here or yeah. point of view, but I think he might say that the, the real issue here is relative versus absolute gains. You know, the idea basically is that it doesn't matter that the U.S. also benefited from China's integration in the, into the global uh, economic system and, and international order. Uh, it doesn't matter that the U.S. benefited that because China from that because China benefited more from that than the U.S. did, and so China used that to narrow the gap in power between the United States and China. And had they been excluded from these institutions, that gap would have narrowed at least more slowly. Um, now, of course, the United States also really benefits in, in kind of an absolute way from from China being part of the global supply chain in particular. My iPhone isn't this cheap without China being part of the of this international trade system. Right. And so, um, you know, from, from from my perspective as a lover of cheap iPhones, you know, there's some sacrifices I'm willing to make. And also, let me just let me just pick up. I mean, I, I understand the, the relative gains point, but one of the, the things I tell my students is that measuring relative gains is really tricky like so the, the claim seems to be china you know gained more than we did uh by joining the world trade organization i mean what is how are we measuring that are we measuring that in terms of like gdp growth are we measuring that in terms of global uh trade flows if the united states benefits uh in in you know area x because of world trade organization uh membership of china but china benefits in area y how exactly are we putting those into some formula and saying that china you know oh well relatively speaking they benefited more i just find the whole idea of, of benefiting more or less uh a, a too simplistic of a way of understanding something that's very complex where the benefits for china might be in a certain number of categories and the benefits for us are in different categories but so if, if that's the case i don't know how you can you can you know compare the the apples and the oranges yeah, and we, and we can't see the counterfactual here either. What if the U.S. excluding China led to uh, an increasingly militarized China even before it was cool for China to be increasingly militarized? Exactly. You know, and, and it's just really hard to know. You know, you might argue that China's inter integration into the international system put a, at least a small check on its illiberal tendencies uh, that would not have been there had the, China not been so integrated. And so we might have seen an even faster Chinese rise absent uh, th those engagement efforts. Now, the, the one area where I sometimes do agree with, with some of the realists uh, is that I, I think there was a tendency in the 1990s and the early 2000s to make some claims, not so much about the liberal order, but about sort of the benefits of globalization more, more broadly. And the idea that um, when, you, when you sort of break, like EU expansion, to the east, and uh, we're going to bring more more states into the under the fold, under the umbrella of of democracy and, and capitalism, and the global trading system is going to make everybody wealthy. Everybody's going to become a computer programmer. It's going to be great, right? Some of those things, I think, were kind of oversold. Like the benefits of of bringing states into the liberal order were were kind of oversold. There was this idea that got floated by by 
you know, a lot of people at the time, actually, that, you know, once once you have a taste of liberal institutions, you know, democracy is going to quickly follow. And you're basically people are going to realize like, oh, the end of history is true. There's only really one way to do this. And it's democracy and capitalism. Um, And I think a lot of that was overblown. So if if the argument is that that we were sort of sold a bill of goods, that incorporating China into the liberal order uh, was going to mean all of these great things. I could I could buy some of that, but I don't think it has anything to do with with sort of the the position that we find ourselves in now. And and we should talk about that actually. What what is the position now? Because I think a lot of people look at China like freaking out, like oh my god, look what's going on. You know, there's there's tragedy coming. There's tragedy coming. And as somebody I I, I forget who you tweeted at me or showed me the tweet of, they're like, if you say things are going to, the tragedy is going to happen often enough, it will end up happening. It's like economists predicting recessions all the time. Well, eventually you do have a recession, right? So it's like, we, we see, we might see the rise of China as being a threatening thing, but I see that as disconnected from the argument about, about the liberal order, right? But we should talk about, I think at some point, whether or not the rise of China is sort of a threatening thing, whether we actually should be, should be worried about this. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two, really two parts of Mearsheimer's argument. And one, the one that we've been talking about is that it's it's, it's the U.S. fault right. it, it, to some extent to allow that and that that allowed China's rise and that that wasn't inevitable and, and could have been could have been stopped. But but the U.S. Uh, under its delusional thinking did not do so. And then there's this other piece, which is, well, where are we now? And his argument here is that we are in a new Cold War that is going to be at best, a really difficult standoff between these two powers, and maybe more likely, or at worst, uh, a hot war between these these two great powers. You know, he says, great powers are simply unwilling to let other great powers grow stronger at their expense. Except, except that's exactly what the United States just did, according to his argument. Yes, with the exception we, of the, of <laughs> so the, uh, we, we of the we, earlier we, part of this article, right? Right. So great, great powers. He's talking about kind of going forward. Right. Um, right. We're, we're just not going to not going to let that happen. Except that we did for the last several decades. He's basically saying that this is uh, we're kind of stuck in this situation. Right. And the only thing that could change this dynamic, he says, I'm paraphrasing, would be a big crisis um, that halts China's rise. Um, and so this dangerous security competition is all but unavoidable. Basically, we're in this standoff that realists would have told us we were going to be in. We hastened our our arrival at this standoff by poor policy, embracing these liberalism, these values of liberalism that we should not have embraced. Um, And so now we're in quite a situation, Marcus. Mm -hmm. What are we to do? There's no way out because realism dictates that both of these powers are going to continue to pursue power at the expense of the other, that no one will be willing to back down from this impending conflict, right? And the best we can hope for is a new Cold War. Mm. So I don't know. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, first of all, I mean, there's a couple couple of of things that bother me when when people talk about the rise of China. So, first of all, if, we, if we're thinking about this in pure military terms, I know that John Mearsheimer likes to talk a lot about economics, right? And and uh, the GDP of China is growing, and so on and so forth, right? But at the end of the day, the theory is is really about military capabilities and and your ability to project, you know, power um, around the world. China's not close to the United States yet. They they are they are making their way up. They are building. There there's reports that they're uh, uh, trying to build more nuclear warheads and so and so forth. But they still have a long way to go. And so if the if the argument is that at some point we're going to reach some type of parity between the United States and China, like we had so similar parity between the Soviet Union and, and the United States, which really was uh, a situation where there was an actual arms race. Um, I think we might that that at that moment I would be a little bit uh, more concerned. But at the moment, I actually don't. I don't see the the arms race in quite the same way a lot of the the sort of hysterical takes do. Um, China has a lot of catching up to do militarily, and that's just in terms of number of, of warheads, right? And we also have the situation of their their posture, their ability to to use submarines, for example, and have nuclear weapons uh, around the world like we do to to attack. And so I just I, I look at the at China, I see a rise, I see a very strong economic power, but from a military capabilities perspective. I don't I don't see quite the big deal that a lot of people do, but I'd be curious to get your take because this is more sort of your your area. Yeah. Now we're now you're speaking my language. Yeah. Um, now so let's get into it. This let's ism, get into it, this ism stuff was um, really rough for me to get through. But now that we've <laughs> now that we're talking about like nuclear weapons now, now I'm ready yeah. to talk. So, I, I mean, I guess behind your intuition about this, Marcus, is a sense that there's a um, comparison between U.S. power and Chinese power. And as long as the U.S. is ahead, 
by whatever measure we're choosing in power, you're cool with that. And well, my argument would be, who cares what level of power the other party has if they have enough to do what they need to do? And in, in China's case, it is enough to perhaps deter U.S. aggression in some places, deter U.S. engagement in conflicts that involve China and U.S. allies, potentially, mm-hmm. deter U.S. involvement in a Taiwan conflict if one is coming down the pike. How many nuclear weapons do you need for that? I mean, it doesn't matter that China has far fewer nuclear weapons than the United States for those particular use cases. Well, and that's that's exactly what I mean. If you were if you were comfortable that China had two hundred weapons and you were nuclear weapons and you were comfortable that they had three fifty, it, it's unclear to me why you're now all of a sudden uncomfortable once they hit a thousand, right? So it's it's. I think we've already passed that point, right? So, the, so the rise, the rise of China that, that John Mearsheimer is, is continuing like to worry about. To me, we've already seen that rise. They they already are a nuclear power. They're already able to deter us. The reason we're not going to go uh, fight a war over Taiwan is because of their nuclear power, and they've had that for a long time. So when I see these stories come out about you know the continued rise of China and they're building more nuclear weapons and this and that. It it doesn't if if it wasn't a problem for you five years ago, I don't know why it's a problem now because the uh, to your point, they still have they have the same deterrent capability that they had uh, before. Maybe they have a little bit more now, but to me, that's not a meaningful uh, distinction. So my point is, is they, they for a very long time they've been able to deter us from getting involved in Taiwan. I don't know why everybody's freaking out about it now. I kind of understood you to be saying if you could say that China was an eight out of 10 on the scale and U.S. was only a seven out of 10. Well, now I'm going to be worried. And my argument is like, who cares whether China is a little below or a little above the U.S. in terms of its overall power, however you're measuring power. The the, the real point is that the, that the deterrent capability that China has is good enough for whatever purpose you can imagine using. Exactly it. right. We are on the same page. My, my, my only point was that people, China started to become a serious problem for the United States once they became a nuclear power. Right. I think that's that's really sort of the, the, the point. And so their ability to, to get more nuclear uh, warheads and more submarines and things like that, it, it bothers me a little bit. But I've already, I've been bothered by by the rise of China already. So, I, I it's, you know, to me, it's not really that big of a deal. Like the story today that they are going to a thousand nuclear warheads. Yeah. So let the record show that Professor <laughs> Holmes is like waving his arms around as if to say, who cares about those warheads? So I, I will say oh, this is an ahead, audio. Jay. This is an audio medium, Marcus. Remember, you're on a podcast. I have to say, for the listeners at home, I have really been doing a lot of gesticulations. <laughs> Nothing gets me more worked up than talking about John Mearsheimer and the rise of of China. There's quite there's quite a bit of hand waving. Can going I say on, just? Can sure. I just? Sometimes I think in these conversations, um, there's 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 a tendency. Not that I'm blaming you, Jeffrey. Uh, I, I will blame sort of the, the John Mearsheimer side. There's a tendency to sort of get fixated on. Uh, sort of numbers, you know, it's like GDP and they're growing and these nuclear warheads and blah, blah, blah. And to me, all of this misses, misses the point, right? Because the, the, the point of this conversation, it seems to me, is our relationship with China, it seems to me, is premised on, on one of distrust, where the concern, the reason we're worried about China is because we don't actually know what they want. We don't actually know what their intentions are vis-a-vis the Asia Pacific, vis-a-vis Taiwan, or anything like that. So the problem is not whether they're going from 350 nuclear weapons to 500 to 1,000. The problem is trying to figure out what is it that China actually wants? And is there a way to diplomatically create an arrangement with them where they're satisfied with the status quo so they need not go invade Taiwan or they need not do something else in the South China Sea or whatever the case might be? So we, we never really talk about the diplomatic solutions to the basic problem, which is that we can't trust them and evidently they can't trust us. There was a story just the other day where they, they, they revealed that they were worried that in 2020 there was going to be some war started with them precisely because of the domestic turnover uh, and, and turmoil in the United States. And so they clearly don't trust us as a state because they're looking at us and, and we're, we're running around having these coups and, and January 6th insurrections and all that. And of course they can't trust us. So we need to be thinking about what the solution 
to the problem is and and get away from the numbers, get away from like, you know, thinking about GDP and, and nuclear war. And to me, this is the, the only way you solve this problem is the same exact way you solved it during the Cold War, by the way, is you go down there and you talk to the people and you have some diplomacy with the other side and you try to figure out what what G wants and how we can make an arrangement where we can, everybody can can win. You're a fan of negotiation. I'm a fan of negotiation. Why can't we just have a negotiated settlement, so to speak, with China? What exactly is the problem there? Why why are politicians so loath to even try that idea? Yeah, we get it, Marcus. You you like diplomacy. And I do get worked up. If there's one if there's one theme, I think, across all these all these podcasts is that Professor Holmes is a, a big fan of But you see what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying. I, I right. but I mean I guess I would say we are doing diplomacy all the time. That that it's not it's like well then we're not G G didn't even show up to the for you for you the only diplomacy that matters is if Biden is in a in a room with G and like that's that misunderstands my friend no, no, what no, diplomacy no. That's not is the only thing I can no no I I, I get you. but when G doesn't even show up to the to the climate conference in Scotland like what what is that and so I'm not I'm not saying like the blame is on the United States side or, or China side but but why are the the players in this conflict not actually having interactions why not go to scotland why is Vladimir putin not in scotland why not go and, and engage and have interactions with other world leaders on this global threat to the to the system i don't understand that and you're absolutely right of course there's 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 diplomatic interaction going on 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 with china but i, I will note that biden a summit with xi for example would not be the worst thing in the world i think that would be nice we just did one with putin Right. I, I don't understand why there hasn't been more you know, diplomatic engagement at higher levels. But, you know, well, I, I think I, they're working on it. I mean, we, we, we see reports of, of the attempts that the United States are making to at least on our end to, um, yeah. to, our to, end. to make arrangements for that. I think I think the reason there's no summit is there's nothing to there's no takeaway from the summit. I mean, I, I know we, we don't have to have the same summit discussion in every podcast, but <laughs> but, but like, you know, if, if I'm if I'm staffing Biden, I, I do not want him going to talk to to china without a without a takeaway that we can get out of it what this is a big uh a big deal if we're going to have a face-to-face meeting between the leaders of these countries and i want concrete deliverables that are going to come out of that before i before i waste the effort on that on that's that, great uh, so and we should we should absolutely do that let's get those concrete deliverables all squared away and then yeah. we can go to the summit but well, it but takes a little time is, marcus right exactly but my but, but the, the big point here is that i, I think there's a general rule we we tend to get fixated on you know, what are their capabilities? What is their economic situation? And somehow try to derive what that means for the relationship with them in the United States. Those are just objects. Like those, a weapon is a weapon. Like that doesn't mean meaning in and of itself. So we need to understand at a social level, at a political level, what's driving them? Is it insecurity? Or what are they trying to do? What are they trying to get out of all this, right? And I'm not saying there's always going to be a diplomatic solution to everything. Uh, but often there is. They didn't think there was a diplomatic solution at the end of the Cold War. It turned out there was one. So let's go find out. Let's let's give it a shot. But but to focus on the sort of uh, uh, observable indicators that we do have, and then somehow say, you know, from these numbers, we we know that China's you know the rise of China, they're tr- the revisionist power. They're going to try to take over. They're trying to be a hegemon. I just don't buy it, and I think it's dangerous. And the overall point is that if you keep on talking about these things in tragic terms, you, you indeed are more likely to have a tragic outcome, it seems to me. Yeah, well, I, I actually agree with you. I, I think the, the great power conflict stuff is, is significantly overblown. You know, that doesn't mean there won't be a great power conflict. It um, could be. You know, there may, there may well be. And certainly the tenor of the relationship between the U.S. and China right now is, is not good and suggests that these are countries with conflicts that need to be worked out, with the competing interests that need to be worked out. Can I ask you one more China-specific question? Sure. I remember going to talks, uh, like in graduate school and, and, and then after that, like, you know, 10 years ago or so, where, where people were talking about China's nuclear uh, posture as being like they had no intention of matching us. Right. The idea was we're going to have this like lean kind of deterrent uh, and based kind of on the logic that you were espousing earlier, like we don't actually need that much to prevent the United States from from screwing around in Taiwan or elsewhere. And then, though, now we see this move to create more nuclear weapons and they're going to go supposedly from or the United States says they're going to go from 350 to 1000 or whatever. It is. is that is that a, a signal to you of a shift in their strategy? Uh, is that a, is that a signal of a shift in their sort of like policy and their in their way of thinking about this? Or alternately, is it just, uh, you know, they, they figure 
you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna have nuclear weapons, we might as well have a decent number of them. And we still consider a thousand to be lean compared to whatever the United States has, like fifty five hundred or or whatever. So, do you do you have any thoughts on the sort of uh, substantive importance, if any, of the move from three fifty to to a thousand? I think the drivers of the increase in Chinese nuclear capability, and I think even military com- capabilities generally, particularly when it comes to kind of new ma- military capabilities like hypersonic missile, there was a recent hypersonic missile test, anti-space capabilities. I think a lot of this is a concern over a conflict with the United States. And when you think about the level of nuclear weapons that are appropriate for some country, the calculation involves what does a conflict with that country look like? that involves that kind of a military capability. So when it comes to the number of nuclear weapons that China has, in the past, China has felt like its small number of nuclear weapons, at least small compared to the United States and Russia, its small number of nuclear weapons was sufficient to make the U.S. think twice before trying to um, get into a military conflict with China, that it was enough that the U.S. wouldn't feel like it could take out all of Chinese nuclear capability in a first strike, so China would be able to respond with nuclear weapons, thus deterring the first strike in the first place. This is kind of the logic of mutual assured destruction from the Cold War, that countries have a second strike capability, a nuclear capability that will survive the first engagement with the enemy and allow them some ability to strike back. And the fact that that exists, the fact that there's a survivable second strike capability means that the enemy won't attack in the first place. So for China, the um, several hundred nuclear weapons that they have had uh, for some time, and they've been building up their capability for a while, has kind of met that test traditionally. But there are a couple of dynamics that are changing that, uh, that calculus. One is the U.S. push forward on missile defense capabilities. And as you know, the, the U.S. has kind of built up its missile defense capabilities over the years. But uh, basically, this, this capability is aimed, says the United States, at kind of rogue actors like North Korea and Iran. The idea being these countries have ballistic missiles that they can lob at the United States, not very many of them. And the U.S. wants to be in a position to knock those missiles out of the sky before they hit the United States, particularly uh, the U.S. homeland. And so the drive to create missile defense systems, while it may be aimed at Iran and North Korea, does also affect Russia and China, and particularly China, which has relatively few nuclear weapons compared to the United States. And so a robust missile defense capability on the part of the United States changes that second strike calculus for China. It might feel like it cannot, if if the U.S. is able to take out, say, half of its nuclear weapons in a first strike, China may not have enough left to get through U.S. missile defense systems to deter a U.S. first strike in, in the first place. And so that calculus, I think, matters. Um, the other thing that's happening is an increasing qualitative capabilities on the part of the United States uh, in terms of its ability to target Chinese military capabilities. The U.S. has more accurate weapons than it used to. Those accurate weapons will allow it to have greater confidence that it could actually take out a Chinese nuclear capability and leave relatively few weapons remaining. And there's some, there's a big debate about this in the nuclear weapons literature um, in kind of my neck of the woods, where folks have argued about whether U.S. nuclear capabilities have advanced to the point that it could successfully launch a first strike against China and not allow China any uh, capability to respond with. And if that's true, that puts China in a difficult position in terms of its its standoff with the United States, because it wants to be able to say, hey, we can respond. And if the U.S. thinks that it can strike first and win, then the U.S. has an incentive to do so. And that's worrying for everybody. So this, this logic suggests that they need to beef up their nuclear weapons sufficiently that that's not an issue. Matthew Kranig, who is uh, at Georgetown, uh, has written a book about the, the logic of U.S. nuclear strategy and um, basically argued that, you know, while nuclear war is, is not great, is bad, you know, it doesn't mean you can't win. Right. Even if a lot of people die, even if uh, uh, countries are destroyed, it is still a winnable war, potentially, particularly when you have countries with a mismatch in nuclear capabilities like the United States and China. So, yeah, we kill lots of people, but the U.S. could win. And that's in quotes for those not actually watching me uh, in air quotes. The U.S. can win a nuclear war with China. And so China might want to do something to make the case that it uh, that U.S. cannot actually win that war or that the cost of that war will be much greater than we than we think it will be. And that's driving the increase in Chinese capabilities generally.
Okay. And the, and the reason you put when in quotation marks is because when here is basically just meaning that we're not we're not all dead. Like a lot of people are dead, but just not all of us. It's well, not only the people complete, in the big cities, right? The, right. The, it's not the, complete annihilation. Right. Although I will say, I think we're you and I are close enough to Norfolk that we're in trouble. Um, which oh, is like we're a definitely. Major yeah, between DC and Norfolk, we're yeah. Yeah, I think we're okay DC wise, but but Norfolk is is close. I really love talking to you about nuclear weapons. It's like one of the things that I enjoy uh, uh, the most on this podcast because you bring you bring and I love talking to you about diplomacy. This is great. You bring and the isms. You bring knowledge to the table, which I think is just it's fantastic. This is I learn something every time we talk about nuclear weapons. But you get you. I, I should say on this, like you have different kinds of policy responses to to these kinds of Chinese action on the part of the United States. So one response to China beefing up its nuclear weapons effort is to say on the U.S. side, well, we need to do that, too. We need more and better nuclear weapons to keep pace, even though we're way ahead in terms of number. We need to keep pace qualitatively uh, in terms of like the the capabilities of the weapon systems with China. And so you had this Chinese test of a hypersonic uh, missile, which is just a really fast missile. And uh, the, the U.S. Has, doesn't seem to have that capability. And our, our test of our hypersonic missile didn't go well, right? So, like, there's this, this push on the U.S. side to say, well, we're going to match whatever capabilities China is bringing to the table. And it's not just China, right? Russia has an underwater nuclear drone. That's pretty cool. Maybe we should have one of those, you know, even though it seems like maybe a bad idea <laughs> to, have, to have an underwater nuclear drone. But whatever. There's a push in U.S. policy circles to match those capabilities such that, that there's no country that has something that we don't have. Uh, and, and that somehow will send a signal that we have this, this superiority, that in, um, in, in Koenig's book, he talks about a game of chicken. He's, he says, not just a game of chicken between two cars, right, facing off again on a one-way, a one-way street, driving at each other, and you want to see who sw- swerves first. If you're in a game of chicken, you want to be in a Hummer, and you want your opposing side to be in a Prius. Because now the, the calculation is a little different. If you're in the Hummer, you have a, you have a big advantage against the Prius in this game of chicken. And uh, so that argument suggests that we need these kind of qualitative capabilities that other countries are developing. But there's another argument to be made, and, and there are folks making it, uh, particularly in this administration, saying that that's stupid. <laughs> You know, if, if you're if you're in a, a game of chicken, doesn't matter what car you're driving, right? Like you're both gonna hit, you're both gonna be dead if you hit each other, right? right? Like like what you really want is you really need is the minimum capability to deter the other side, and everything beyond that is either a waste or potentially dangerous because it drives this kind of underlying security dilemma where others see your behavior as threatening, even though you see your behavior as uh, something you're doing to protect your own security. So this, this, you know, the minimum capability we need to deter in international relations, or I guess more broadly to get what we want in international relations, may not be, well, we need to have everything China has. It may just be like, hey, we got a lot of nuclear weapons. We're going to be okay. You know, it's, I use the Hummer and Prius example of my students because I think it is, it's, it's very illuminating, right? Because you can see both sides of the logic. You could see if I'm in a game of chicken, I would, I'd rather be in the Hummer, of course. And you could also see the logic where if we're in this crash we're both gonna die most likely i mean maybe the hummers maybe that we we the you know the people in idaho survive or whatever that's the equivalent of the the hummer winning in that in that interaction but it, it does highlight the, the the logic quite nicely i will say to to Kroning's point um one of the things i also point out in my class which i think is, is kind of interesting that there, there is some evidence that having more doesn't really matter so much in this game of chicken per se but rather what it means for the negotiations that happen. So, for example, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there is evidence of policymakers in the U.S. and policymakers in Moscow talking about how many nuclear weapons each side has. And you could, you could sort of infer that, that one of the reasons why the Soviet Union might have backed down was both what was going on in, in Cuba and the letters are being sent back and forth, but also their realization that they had, at that point, fewer actionable uh, missiles that they could like broadly that they could they could use, and so it affected the way that they saw the crisis itself. So this qualitative kind of idea that you know we need more, not just because the other side is going to swerve first in the sort of material sense, but the other side might swerve first in the negotiations during a crisis that will eventually defuse the crisis. Yeah, well, th- I think that's Matt Matt's point, right? That that's the point that Craning is trying to make. That it's by ha- by driving the Hummer, you're going to prompt the other side to make a deal because they're going to be persuaded by your uh, superiority in, you know, whatever way you're measuring uh, nuclear superiority or, or military superiority. So it's not that you actually end up playing the game of chicken. You don't. 
you you hopefully not. you know you solve it in negotiation right um and i think i think matt would argue that that's how it works and and that this is a good example for him for his case uh, i guess i'll say like for those who find the uh the hummer prius analogy interesting or are interested in this nuclear stuff i'll make a little pitch for my class next semester marcus i'm teaching politics of nuclear weapons government 391-4 which is uh, a class that that bring that is based around guest speakers including matt crane has come to talk to us in the past that brings in people who are prominent academics working on nuclear issues or even policy or intelligence people who do nuclear stuff for a living to talk about like different facets of these of these problems, including why do countries get nuclear weapons? How do we stop them from doing that? If, should we want to? And uh, what does it mean to have particular nuclear weapons for particular countries? And I think um, it's it's been a fun experience the last couple of times I've taught it. We've had some really interesting people come out and and speak we might be doing it in a slightly different format this this semester because of COVID travel stuff, but uh, but I think it'll still be a, a good time. So if, if folks are interested in this, I'd encourage you to to join us. Yeah, and I uh, for those students listening that 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 are curious about nuclear weapons and want to uh, learn more, I highly recommend this class. I haven't taken the class, of course, but I have gone to some of the presentations and and I've gotten to meet some of the people that you bring to town, and I and I I trust that it's a really interesting class, and I think it's a good. A good one for anybody, really, but particularly if you're interested in these security uh, types of questions. Yeah. So, Marcus, let's start off a new segment. Call it Ask Cheap Talk. Ask Cheap Talk. Ask Cheap. Ask Ask Cheap Talk. Ask Ask Cheap Talk. Yeah. Ask Cheap Talk. Cheap Ask. uh, Yeah. Ask. Let's go to Veronica and Fairfax. (laughs) Veronica, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Loudoun County represent. (laughs) Fairfax, you're dead to me. We had some folks leave us comments and questions after all of our urging. We appreciate it. And we hope you will take the opportunity to do this. Go to www.speakpipe.com slash cheap talk and leave us a message. We'll beam you to all 17 of our listeners. And so um, let's hear from Sailor. Sailor, go ahead. Hi, professors. I'm Sailor Emil. I'm listening from Williamsburg, Virginia. I, re- I just want to say really appreciate y'all's conversation about Taiwan because uh, that's exactly what I wrote for the policy memo under Professor Kaplow. I think the, U- the U.S. have really been this unfair or not objective observer. Uh, they have not been really engaging in this, you know, in, in this whole issue. Um, and I, I think I, we learned about in Professor Kaplow's class where we have to have a third party, a, a fairly objective third party, to ensure that you know conflicts actually don't don't happen. But I feel like, you know, comparing to other international crises, the U.S. has not really been active in this. Uh, I mean, besides uh, supporting, kind of supporting Taiwan's side because, you know, they're, it, it is a democratic territory. Do you think the U.S. should become more active in terms of, you know, what they do and actually begin engaging both sides back to the negotiation table? Or should they continue uh, supporting Taiwan? Thanks so much for the for the question. So I think what what Sailor is trying to get at here is the U.S. role in defusing the the China Taiwan conflict. So we usually think of the U.S. as the actor here in this China Taiwan conflict as the kind of as a pseudo ally of Taiwan. That is, the U.S.'s role is to deter Chinese aggression toward Taiwan by having Taiwan's back and thus making Taiwan stronger in that conflict. And so China will be deterred and we won't have a conflict. But I think Sailor's getting at this broader question of what should the U.S. be doing to make sure that conflict never happens in the first place? Is, is it all deterrence or can the U.S. play a role in a more durable peace going forward? One of the things that, that Sailor mentions in this, in this message is this idea of a fair broker, uh, someone who can be objective between two parties. And I think this is a common misconception about interveners in international politics that, oh, it'd be good to have someone who both parties trust. But I think that's actually not true. I think there's, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence, particularly in the Civil War literature, that looks at what makes for a good guarantor of the peace. And generally, it is not a fair broker. It is not a party that is trusted equally by both sides. And Marcus, maybe you can talk about the, the diplomacy side of this, where maybe there is more value to be trusted, being trusted by both sides. But in the costly signaling world, in the in the rationalist world, we would think about uh, the kind of country that can credibly threaten to enforce the peace on behalf of one of the parties. That is, you want someone in there enforcing a peace in a conflict zone or whatever 
or or leading to the resolution of a of a, of a war who is really associated with one of the parties, preferably the weaker party, such that they can make sure that if those if that party's rights are trodden upon, if that party is double crossed in the post-war period, that this third party guarantor will have the political will to come in and support that party. And so uh, it turns out that objective third parties aren't really what you're looking for. You're looking for biased mediators frequently. And there's a, a very interesting literature that talks about this, how biased mediators are more effective in leading to resolutions, particularly in civil war, that uh, are more effective than unbiased mediators. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things in the diplomacy literature that's very similar, I mean, they don't usually talk about the like, costly signaling or the rationalist assumptions, but they, they talk about how mediators need not be uh, unbiased. And oftentimes, you know, you might think, like to Sailor's point, you might think that you go into an interaction and you don't want the mediator to be sort of like favoring one side or the other. But it actually turns out that that as long as the mediator can, can be um, objective, so to speak, in the negotiation itself and sort of understand both sides, that's all that the parties are, are really looking for. So for example, uh, you would have thought for in 1978, 1979, when they were, they were doing the Camp David Accords, uh, the United States sort of mediated Jimmy Carter between Israel and Egypt. And, you know, the United States and Israel had been, always been very close. And so you might say, well, Egypt was be, you would be very skeptical of having the United States serve as mediator. Um, but what the United, United States did, and what Jimmy Carter did in particular, was he was able to show uh, Sadat uh, in Egypt, I understand what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from. I understand what your position is. I understand what your interests are and so forth. And I also understand the Israeli perspective. And I'm going to show you what what they're telling me and what their interests are. And I'm going to show you why we can actually bridge these two. And I think it's true that, that the United States, you know, did have a lot of reasons to sort of favor Israel. I mean, there was reasons to to think that, but it didn't end up actually mattering in terms of, of the way that the, the negotiations played out. Uh, I think partially because Jimmy Carter was just good at during those two weeks and being able to, to mediate between the two. So even diplomatically, um, it's not necessarily clear that, that you need anybody who's, you know, sort of, objective, uh, so to speak. Well, and it's valuable for one of the parties to be able to push the, for the media yeah. to be able to push one of the parties around, right? right? Like exactly. the U.S. has greater leverage over Israel and that allows for it to be a more effective mediator because it can say, if you don't do this, we have some levers that we can bring to bear to kind of force you to bargain in good faith. And that, right. I think it's really valuable in, in that, in that environment. Yeah. Now I will say if you're, if you're so biased that it becomes evident that you're not able to represent you know, the issues uh, or the interests of both parties in a, in a somewhat fair way, you might you might be sort of overdoing it. But I think you're absolutely right. I think a little bit of, of bias provides leverage and think that's that's helpful. I mean, I think to Sailor's question about the Taiwan situation, um, it's certainly possible that the United States could do more. I mean, sometimes you hear about this in, in terms of like reconciliation or unification or something like that. Um, the United States might be able to serve a role in trying to facilitate uh, some of those talks. But I think precisely because the United States and China um, are in a position of, of what I would characterize as deep uh, distrust at the moment, it's unlikely that China would ever uh, be willing to have the United States serve that role. It might actually be the case the United States doesn't want to serve that role either. Um, but I, I think it's a it's a situation where there's there's so much latent sort of uncertainty between the two parties that it would be a, a bad fit. It might be the case, though, that other entities in the international system could serve such a role. I mean, maybe um, some European leaders or or something else uh, could sort of aid talks in terms of reconciliation. But I just, my, my intuition is that the, the, the question is right, that we need to be thinking about this not just in deterrence terms, but in, in diplomatic reconciliation terms. But just strikes me that the United States is probably not the right actor at the moment uh, to be sort of starting that that line of thinking. Yeah, I think absent a dramatic, very dramatic change in the political situation in either China or Taiwan, the piece we're talking about in the in the near to medium to kind of long term is the status quo. That the the idea that we're going to negotiate a peaceful union between them is is uh it's not happening anytime soon and there's nothing to negotiate at this point well not to mention that the you know public opinion in in taiwan is also divided on this issue and so it'd be difficult to to have uh sort of imposition of a process without you know fully having engaged partners on both sides 
Yeah, I mean Taiwan doesn't doesn't want to do it. I've, like, so, so, <laughs> That's another way of putting it. So, yeah. like, what are we what are we negotiating here? You know, okay. the the I think the best case for Taiwan in the quite long term is is what they have now, which is independence and a great power with lots of military capability very close to them. Um, and I think there there isn't a lot of prospect for for changing that in any kind of um, reasonable time period. So, unless there's like a major political shift in China. And suddenly we're dealing with a very different state. I think that this is what Taiwan wants to have. And the U.S. is doing what it can to keep it that way, which is offering some security guarantees, Mm -hmm. some non-public, ambiguous security guarantees to, to Taiwan that will hopefully deter any kind of military action from China. Hey, Marcus, I think we should leave it there. Thanks so much for for joining me today, my friend. This has been this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. Sure. And uh, we'll see everyone next time. See you next time on Cheap Talk. Is there some law that says that we have to introduce ourselves the same way every single time? I think most of our listeners now know who we are. Yeah, but maybe like this will be their first episode and then, you know, they don't know. That's a good point. Who we are, Uh, you know, who knows? Somebody might be just popping in. Who knows the algorithm by which Apple Podcasts is recommending this podcast to to people? there's There's no way to know. It is sort of like when you watch a television show mid-season, you just pop in, randomly watch an episode. It's nice if they if the writers have some way of kind of showing you who the characters are, what they're all about, even if you have no prior experience with them. That's always nice because you can kind of catch up quickly. So it's nice that we introduce ourselves. Well, and it's also a way of reminding our students uh, our names. Right. I don't think my students forget my name. but I don't know. From talking to my freshman advisees in particular – I think it is not uncommon for students to not know the names of their of their professors. I, I, I'll be like, I actually I, I have noticed this. How is your econ 101 class going? Right. Oh, who's right. teaching that? Oh, you know, uh, that right. person. So that is a good point. I, I, yeah, I take that. Sometimes I talk to students. It's obviously they don't know the names of the, the faculty. And I guess I shouldn't expect them to. I mean, you know, why? Well, how often are they calling you by your name? They They just they raise their hand. You call on them. Well, not in your class, but. Um, if you had any audience participation, then <laughs> I have nothing but audience participation in my class. Is that right? I thought, I thought you just sit in the back and uh, you like lecture at them and then, you know, no, I do some of that. Yada, 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 yada. Final exam. You're done. <laughs> that is uh, that's an inter- that's how kind of it was when I was in college. Taking these big lecture classes. You just sat there. People would be sleeping in the back, smoking, you know. Yeah, sure. You know, speaking of our our. Um, Long-suffering listeners, I, I had a comment. Uh, you know, this garage. Garage door now is closing? Garage door closing. <laughs> garage door closing. We're off to a great start right. today. This is going well. <laughs> this, is, this is great. This is we'll fix well. it in post. Yeah, maybe not. Just uh, my, new, my new strategy is to let it, all, let it all in there. You know, less editing time for me. Uh, but I, I had a comment from uh, one of our listeners who was a little annoyed at our kicking off of season two by insulting our our longtime listeners oh. basically saying who would be listening to this if they didn't have to be listening to this. And so I wanted to apologize <laughs> to anyone who has stuck with us to what is this season two, See, episode eight season or four. something? Episode oh, seven. We're season two. Yeah. I thought it was season four. I don't know. Episode 322 of uh, whatever, whatever we're at. I, I just want to want to say that we do value our listeners. We hope you'll stick with us for, the rest, for the rest of the journey. And I had a thought, maybe for this our season finale, I think we should go on location somewhere. I was thinking we could do like a remote, um, maybe like Witch Witch or uh, Sunken Gardens or something. I hear Panera is, is lovely this time of year. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the obvious solution is a live show where we... Oh, that would be epic. We bring in, you know, all 17 of our listeners can join us in... Uh, in some COVID, sit- we have to do it out- outdoors in some kind of large arena. I because I can't do a mask and speak. Right, this exactly. Clearly. We we need a outdoors COVID safe. Right. Mark your calendars now. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll be coming. We'll be coming to you with more details on that. I'll put that into Outlook. Yeah, as we as we get closer to to the end of the road here.